Hello, you are tuned into the Big Q podcast produced by the Markula Center for Applied Ethics. My name is Owen Hilsbeck. I'm a philosophy major and a senior here at Santa Clara University, and I'm usually joined by my co-host Chandra Smith, but today it is just me. She's graduated early and is already off to big and cool things, but she's listening in. As Chanza mentioned, we have just started to scratch the surface of what hookup culture means here at Santa Clara University. We're going to continue that conversation today, looking more specifically at the relationship between drinking and hookup culture. We'll talk about how drinking influences consent and about how certain events that involve a lot of drinking can make people feel pressured to hook up. We've sought out a variety of interviews for this podcast, and the interviews do not represent the Markula Center for Applied Ethics. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, email us at bigqpodcast at gmail.com. To kick off discussion, we were able to get Michelle Oberman to call into the podcast. She's a professor of law at Santa Clara University Law School. She's a nationally recognized scholar and has a great passion for the legal and ethical issues at the intersection of health law and criminal law. And I thought it would be great to have her onto the podcast to talk about the legal issues surrounding podcast. But more than that, uh, where the legal issues end and where the ethical issues begin. So we're kind of seeing uh, when it comes to consent, kind of seeing the legal uh, part as the floor and the ethical part as the ceiling, the ethical part being what should you do to be a good person? So um, let me talk about the law as a starting point and then um, getting to what I think are more realistic solutions um, as, a, as an ending point. So the law um, on, um, on sex says that if a person is so intoxicated that they're incapable of giving consent, then it is a rape. It's very clear. If the person is so intoxicated that they cannot give a meaningful consent, it's rape. Right. Um, the um, the hard question underneath that law is figuring out well how intoxicated does that have to be, because alcohol is a regular feature of hookup culture. Right. The the combination of alcohol and a hookup is like uh, I mean it's 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 hand in glove. Right. And it's it's bigger than just um, date culture, although to be sure, you're right, that the intensity of the focus on the date and the event um, probably does fuel even more pressure um, in that hookup culture. But it's the alcohol that's the common denominator. And there's alcohol on both sides, right? The girls drink alcohol most often, as do the boys, and it's consumed because it's thought to... um, release inhibitions and making it easier to relax and have a good time in what might otherwise be a pretty um, awkward and uncomfortable situation, maybe, um, for all the reasons that you flagged, right? Um, you don't quite know them. There's a lot of pressure. Maybe you don't really have a navigated relationship a whole lot because you've been texting your life away, right? Yeah. Um, so all, and because we don't really talk about how to navigate a complicated sexual relationship, where are the models for doing that? Right. Like we don't do consent education. We do like the plumbing education when we do sex education. We don't do a how to figure out consent. So you don't have a whole lot of models. You're navigating it under the influence. And the job of the person who is wanting to push forward and have more contact is to figure out whether their partner who they don't know is still capable of giving meaningful consent. You know for sure once they pass out that they're no longer capable, right? A a person who is not conscious cannot give consent. Anything shy of that 
it's like great, great territory, right? And the law has a very hard time with great territory. Right? So what you're going to end up with when you try to prosecute as an, uh, as an unconsensual sexual encounter, i.e. a rape, um, after a situation where you're with a stranger and there was a lot of alcohol, is that the defense is going to is going to claim no, 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 she consented, right? And she's going to claim no, I didn't, and it's going to come down to, well, was she capable of giving consent? And that's a pretty hard thing to go through in court for for the victim, um, and it's an essential part of what is at issue in a prosecution. Right. You can't duck it. Yeah. Because if she consented, then it's sex. It's not rape. Yeah. Right. Um, so that's how alcohol gets used as an excuse, because it's not really an excuse. It's like it is the issue. Right. The issue is whether she gave meaningful consent and alcohol impairs your ability to consent. But we don't have a zero tolerance rule. Yeah. It's not like, oh, if she had one drink, she can't consent. Right. Yeah, yeah, we don't yeah. even have a clear rule of three drinks or four drinks, right? We, we don't have a rule. So this is where the law just gets so tangled. So I'm sure most of you remember the Brock Turner case that happened a few years ago. And in that case, Brock Turner, who had sexually assaulted an unconscious woman behind a dumpster, argued that she had given consent. And this was a serious discussion about whether she had given consent or not. So clearly... The law is not always going to be helping us out on this issue. So we really do have to turn to the ethics of it all and what we need to be doing to uh, make sure that we're treating people with, with dignity and respect and how they would like to be treated. So we're going to transition now to some interviews about uh, from students at Santa Clara University about date events and their experiences at these. So we're not going to hear stories of sexual assault, obviously. But we will be hearing stories that kind of emphasize problems surrounding consent. And before we dive in, I want to emphasize and make clear that most sexual assaults are committed by people that the victim knows, people that the victim is either friends with or acquainted with. At date events, I definitely felt pressured afterwards. Like after I'd be asked to date event with someone, I feel like because there is an expectation that I would go with someone, I would I would kind of feel pressured um, to like to hook up with them and it felt weird saying no to them because they'd be like I just took you to my date event like what did yeah. you think was going to happen um which is that kind of pressure is kind of off-putting for me and was definitely like, disappointing with a couple of my dates my freshman year when they were like definitely trying to hook up after a date event and I just thought we were having fun together yeah yeah I think it, that also kind of coincides with like the expectation to hook up at, like, date events, especially at date events where people are drinking, like, a lot, like, especially, like, date and fifths, and you're, like, you could be going to a date and a fifth with this guy that you, like, don't know that well at, like, a fraternity where you don't really know anyone that much, and with girls, like, other girls that you don't know, because it's, like, the guys inviting yeah. the girls, and you're kind of relying on that one person to kind of, like, take care of you, because mm -hmm. you're, like, partners, but, like, a lot, and a lot of times people will ask someone they don't know super well to a date in a fifth just as like a like get to know them but there is kind of that expectation to hook up at the end of the night and if like you guys get too drunk like there really is kind of a fine line of like whether or not the consent is there mm -hmm. and i think also a lot of times with date events the time you say you don't want to hook up is like way before it even starts like if you're yeah. not trying to hook up with your date they're sort of supposed to know before it even starts or at least that's like 
what I've seen around Santa Clara is that if someone has a boyfriend or if someone um, isn't trying to hook up with their date, they try or they make that known way before the date event happens because otherwise it's like it's really unclear during the event. Yeah. I've been in a situation where, like I said at the beginning of the night, like maybe not necessarily like to the guy, but like to my friends, like, okay, like I'm not hooking up with him tonight. Like I don't want to hook up with him. And then like a couple hours later, like we're both drunk and we're like hanging out and I'm like, okay, fine. <laughs> same, same. And like, then in the morning, I'm like, damn it. Like, <laughs> same. <laughs> so yeah, like that's not necessarily like a consent thing, I guess, but a little bit. It's more of just like a... I think that, like, when alcohol is involved, like, people will do things that they, like, originally planned not to, and then, like, there's regret along with that, and, like, that can escalate even further to, like, you definitely not wanting to, but being too drunk to, like, say no. Yeah. And also, like, what you said with the guys getting a no, but then later, like, thinking that maybe the girls changed her mind is definitely... Like the alcohol plays a role in that as well, where either they forget or they don't think it mean, meant that much. Or, or they're they like think just they being convinced. persistent and yeah. not yeah. realize how pushy they're yeah. being. Think they're in Yeah. <laughs> Pressures like these that were just described can be even harder to overcome at date events because the person inviting you to a date event is often someone you know somewhat well, someone you trust. And responding to inappropriate behavior from these kind of people can be shocking. It can lead to disbelief and questioning of one's own perceptions. And so often we see people coerced into situations they would have never usually consented to. And to make matters worse, sometimes the only friend and ally someone who is invited to these events has is the person who invited them. And so if that person is coercing them into something they don't want to do, they're often left without any sort of help. So all these interviews got me really interested in talking to sorority leadership to see how they interpreted these problems and what kind of work was going on behind the scenes to prevent these from happening. Nisha, who you're about to hear from, was a risk manager for one of the sororities at Santa Clara. And as risk manager, it was her job to make sure that the events that were put on were safe and healthy environments. And this very often meant being in constant communication with the leadership of fraternities and other groups her sorority was mixing with and ensuring that they were on the same page about what they were doing together to promote a healthy community, as well as having those very difficult discussions when things don't go as planned. So as a former risk manager of one of the sororities here on campus, it was kind of your job to be very aware of all the risks that are involved in mixing with fraternities and uh, what might go on at date events. So I'm wondering what, as, as the risk manager, what were your uh, concerns around issues of consent and sexual assault? Yeah, so I think the biggest issues that we come across have to do with consumption of alcohol. So, you know, if you're going to a mixer as a female, there's obviously going to be alcohol present, you're likely going to pregame it, and you're going to show up pretty intoxicated, and a lot of times that might lower your inhibitions, it might make you more susceptible to people that you might not have talked to otherwise, or um, spend time with people that you might not have wanted to spend time with. And so... A lot of times for managing risk, it comes down to would this person have wanted to do this if she was in a proper state of mind um, and making sure that people who are under the influence of drugs or alcohol are only doing the things that they would have otherwise wanted to do. So I think that a majority of times it's a matter of making sure that women are watching their sisters or watching you know, their friends to make sure that you know they're not going off with one other person and 
um, just looking out for each other. Sometimes that's also making sure that women are watching themselves because um, obviously there's only so much that other people can do for you. Um, in terms of the male side and what men and in fraternities here can often do, I think is just educate themselves. A lot of times we've had conversations with those frats and made it clear to them that this is a problem that we're seeing and that they need to do everything that they can from an educational perspective to make sure that people are aware that we know what's happening and mm -hmm. so it's something that can be conversed about you know in an open forum and it's not something that's just going on behind closed doors um because i think that that's really the only way to combat those types of things yeah do you have any um any ideas or solutions you keep going back to education um what what do you think that would look like I think that more often we're educating genders individually about these things. It's like, well, girls, like, here's what you can do to not be sexually assaulted. And, like, men, here's appropriate behavior to not sexually assault someone. But I think that there's still, like, this disconnect between what both of them think is mm -hmm. sexual assault, even, to begin oh, with. Yeah. Um, especially when it comes to intoxication or drugs and alcohol um, and sometimes when it's talked about from a university perspective or a professional's perspective it's very black and white mm -hmm. and I don't think that it is black and white I think a lot of times there is that gray area where men aren't really sure or you know women might feel one way but another woman might feel a different way about like what necessarily constitutes sexual assault yeah. and so I think that when it comes to education we need to be having more candid conversations about it as opposed to like this one black and white way of thinking about what sexual assault is um, so I think like these community-wide discussions or like executive discussions where you know like you have presidents or risk managers communicating together um, or fielding questions I think when guys are able to ask open questions to women about these things, then they can get more, uh, I guess, helpful answers, yeah. as opposed to just like hearing it through the same lens that's being projected. Yeah. Where do you think that Greek life is headed in terms of sexual assault and its actions to prevent or address it? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. We see um, fraternities all around the country getting shut down. We see mm -hmm. some states proposing laws to make Greek life banned in whole states. Yeah. And I think it kind of proves the point that fraternities aren't doing enough to address this. They're just hoping that they're not next. And I think if that's kind of the position they're going to be taking, then, um, then sooner or later I think states will probably ban Greek life altogether. I think that it just it's a problem that disproportionately happens in Greek life than anywhere else. And so if we can't figure out how to make uh, our Greek life community safer, then it's for the best that they go away. And I think that's really sad because I've enjoyed it. Yeah. Same, and I have as well. And I think that, again, it's the few that are ruining it for the masses. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think there just needs to be like a large culture shift. And I think a lot of that also stems back to like raising our men and women particularly, and not to put the majority of the blame on one sex, but on the men's part, like, I think a lot of, um, child rearing and, like, initial understandings of, like, the relationships between men and women and, like, a man's place in society, like, I think that 
again, you're going back to all those discussions and that's where really the root of the cause or the issue is. Yeah. So coming full circle back to the Michelle Oberman interview, she's not just an expert on the law, she's also an expert on ethics. So I decided to ask her about solutions and what we could be doing better to prevent these sexual assaults from ever happening in the first place. I mean, really, we need to enlist the, the moral compasses of the, of the kids themselves, right? We need to sort of activate them and have them say, hey, wait, like this matters to me. And, and in the for what it's worth, when I think about who's injured in just say an acquaintance rape setting, not like a stranger rape, but like a, the scenario of like the campus date rape sort of thing, who's injured, it's not just the victim, right? It's the entire collective, it's the entire community. And I know firsthand of men who just like have, like, I don't even know what to do. I have girlfriends that have been raped. I have guys that were former friends that I can't look at anymore, right? Like the, the culture that, that, that sort of cheapens sex as something to be taken from people, um, it, it, it tears at everybody, which is, to be sure, the hallmark of a crime. I mean, all crimes are crimes because they're crimes against society. You might have a victim, but when we prosecute murder, we don't prosecute murder because we want the victim to get money, right? It's because we're all harmed by somebody who kills. We're all harmed by somebody who overreaches in sex, yeah. right? And the question is, like, at what point do we say, okay, we're going to hold you legally accountable? But that doesn't mean we can't hold people morally accountable earlier. Yeah. How do you think that we could start trying to kind of instill that moral education or I don't, I hope that people already know these things. It's just a matter of being able to practice. How do you you think that uh, we could be teaching bystander intervention in such a way that people actually see that when they're going out as opposed to just getting through some orientation program? So, yeah, I think that's a really interesting and challenging question. And um, the the sort of professors sometimes like to give answers to everything because that's what we feel like we have. There are lots of answers. Um, and my area of expertise as a law professor and the person who has like a background in public health probably doesn't entitle me to have too much of a suggestion here. Like I think of it as something that we would, um, ideally deliver as a message consistently across time rather than as a one-time deal in an orientation session, right? That it would be a message that you'd be delivering to middle schoolers as part of what we think of as bullying, yeah. right? That you would be delivering it in all contexts. So I don't think it starts at age 18 in your freshman year. I think it starts earlier, um, which doesn't mean it's too late by freshman year. It just means that if we're serious about it, we have to change the culture entirely, right? We have to change the way that we think about what, um, what consent looks like, right? And what, you know, what, what you know, meaningful contact looks like. Before we go, I want to highlight a really cool program that Michelle Oberman told me about. So in 2016, two students at Oberlin witnessed many of the similar problems we talked about on the pod today and decided to start their own bystander intervention program. It's a program of volunteers who are trained to see possible sexual assaults before they happen, and the program also has a great emphasis on alcohol and substance abuse, as well as education aimed at trying to shift the overall culture, much like our guests talked about today. Now, I would love for something like this to exist at Santa Clara. I would love for fraternities, clubs, and sports teams to, before their date events, designate someone who is trained as a bystander to be at the party, ensuring the community is a responsible and healthy one. Because... Like was mentioned before, 
the community is also greatly harmed by sexual assaults and we all need to be doing more to shift our hookup culture to a place where we are always promoting respect, autonomy, and dignity. Well, that's all we have for today. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at bigqpodcast at gmail.com. Once again, this podcast is produced by the Markless Center for Applied Ethics here at Santa Clara University. Before we leave, I also want to give a special shout out to one of the directors, Miriam Shulman, who is retiring at the end of this year and a very successful career. She's the one who has mentored Chanza and myself, allowing us to have fun with these podcasts and encouraging us to take on tough topics, helping us all along the way. Thank you. Now this outro music you're now hearing is by Poddington Bear. It is called Saunter. Enjoy. <laughs>